Boogie Down with reformed double girl Chase Masterson as she takes you inside Discovery every week on the all-new Star Trek podcast, Disco Nights. From the producers of Inglorious Trexperts, wherever you listen to the 430 movie. And keep looking at the stars. there, I am Robert Meyer Burnett. And I am Ashley E. Miller, super I'm, genius. Oh, okay, I'm Darren Dockerman. And I'm Mark A. Altman. And we are the, the Inglorious Trexperts. We offer the world order. Welcome to a very special celebration of the top 50 Star Trek episodes of all time. Join us as we count down. So now, on to the Trexperts. Number 51. We start with Inter Irma Ermans, what? Silent Leges. Inter Arma Enum Silent Leges. You speak Latin, don't you? No, but I can pronounce the episode title. And what does that mean, <laughs> you know, Ashley? I, it, it means, in times of war, the law falls silent. All right, now this is a great late seventh season episode of Deep Space Nine. Uh, you've got Sloan, Luther Sloan coming back, Section 31, Mysterious Man. There's a conference on Romulus. There is Bashir in the middle of all kinds of intrigue. I think it really, uh, in one episode, it sums up what Deep Space Nine became, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And you have a little bit of experience with Bill Sadler, who played the inimitable Luther Sloan. I do. As a matter of fact, uh, as some might know, I produced, I developed and produced a movie in 19, uh, or actually in 2009. <laughs> in 1917. <laughs> called, called The Hills Run Red, and it's about a crazy film director who believes in killing people for real for his art. And there was only one person that we wanted to play that role. It's based and that on was, Rob's real life. And that was, that was Bill Sadler. And... Um, you know, we, we went to him, and, and uh, I was like, it was hard for me. We were in Bulgaria together, and I'm like, dude, you were Sloan. I mean, there's so many <laughs> people are like, you know, he was like, you know, Rob, but most people talk to me about Bill and Ted or something. Right. Die Hard 2, come on. Die Hard 2. That's a very brave performance Shawshank in Redemption for crying out loud. I think that, that uh, Sadler, Bill Sadler was a, a great example of how Deep Space Nine always excelled. There was not a better, other than the original series, not a uh, better Trek show that that brought in guest stars the way that Deep Space Nine did. And you I know mean, what was great about that episode? Bill Sadler did not do naked martial arts in the teaser. So I like that a lot, too. Well, we had to actually cut out the murder scene where he, he murders his wife naked in The Hills Run Red. He went full commando in that scene. Brave, Much brave to the performer. Much to the rest of the crew. So anyway, enter almost silent like a Fantastic <laughs> episode, though. I mean, it really... It really was sort of the culmination of everything that had been percolating, and we, and we got uh, a really a good look at the Romulans as well. So there we are. That's number 51. In our top 50 Star Trek episodes of all time, and we're giving the world order. I know you're wondering, how did we come up with this list, right? What, what is this Fakakta list we're doing? Well, I'm going to tell you before we get to number 50. Yes, I can't wait to find out we, how we did it. Uh, you know, over the last couple of months since we've launched Inglorious Trexperts, we had a lot of guests from across the Star Trek universe. And in addition to our regular guests, uh, rotating guests, uh, Robert Meyer Burnett and Ashley Miller uh, and Darren and myself, um, we polled uh, many of our guests, David Goodman, uh, Jesse Alexander, Lisa Klink, um, Lucas Kendall, some guests that haven't been on the show yet, but we've recorded episodes with. So this reflects the consensus 
of a very large group of Trexperts. So um, just as you're wondering how we, now every Star Trek show was eligible. Books were not, comics were not, and movies were not. Movies will be a separate show uh, sometime in the future. So this is, uh, you know, any episode of the original Star Trek is eligible, uh, the animated series, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, um, Enterprise, and Discovery. All shows are eligible uh, for the top 50. Um, we discussed it. Uh, we, we, and, and, and after we, uh, each person gave a vote, uh, we, we took the nominations, we, we discussed it, we debated it, and this is where we landed. So at 51, at 51, <laughs> so 51 now on with 50. number 50, Ashley at, Miller at number 50, um, an episode that in many ways is number one in my heart, uh, with a bullet, with a bullet, uh, deep space nines, hard time. Uh, which in many ways is an off-concept episode for the show because it's really a, it's really just a stage play uh, starring Colomini as Chief O'Brien, uh, who is imprisoned for 20 years in his mind. Uh, and uh, in real time, it only passes for like an hour. But in those 20 years, horrible things happen to him. He and thought he made layer cake. He did. Uh, and, uh, he, you know, the funny thing is, he might have. Um, but no, in those 20 years, horrible things happen, and it wasn't just about, you know, being tortured or being shivved in the shower or any of that stuff. It is, it's about the choices that he made, the man he became. Um, the only thing I can really compare it to is the psychological journey is, uh, is the episode of MASH um, where, uh, where Hawkeye is, is on the bus with, like, all of, like, the, uh, all of the, the, the villagers and, like, yeah. you know, they're, 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 they're trying not to get detected and, like, he keeps telling the them. The episode, that, that was the finale. That was the finale. That was the most famous episode. Man. Look, man, I was, like, So what you're saying is it's inner light without a flute. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. is. that what you're saying? Yeah. Goodbye, farewell, but, and amen. Look, yeah. Yeah. It was I a, believe I said that. Doctor. It was a, it, it wasn't a Quite chicken, right. it was a baby, okay? Spoiler alert. Yeah. Right? Anyway, it's hard okay to it was a chicken, it was a baby. <laughs> you know, I have to say, you do many great impressions. No, that ain't one of them. is not that one of them. One of no, them. it's hard to do an all. But I'm glad. Right. Honestly, but thank you for reminding me that it was the finale. I'm, yeah, it was great. If you, it's all also in our top That's 50 right. list of mash episodes. You were young. I was a babe. I was you young. Were I babe. Babe. You, you were the baby. You were the baby in the box. The babe with the power. Number yes. fifty. Top fifty series finales of all time. Go. Damn right. <laughs> <laughs> So that's number fi- I mean, th- number fifty. Hard time. Hard time. You know, look, and Carl Meany was sort of the secret weapon of Deep Space Nine. You know, uh, he, and again, uh, that's somebody that Rick Ch- uh, Berman really championed. He was cast in a very small role in Next Generation as Transporter Chief. Right. And starting uh, in this, was it the second season that he first appeared? No, he was in the first. Oh, season. He was in the pilot. Oh my god, that's was, right. I remember him in like the really not good looking. He was piloting uniform. the ship. Yeah, in yeah. Encounter at Farpoint. And Rick, to his credit, saw something in Calm as the everyman, and you know, he was the original person to make the jump from Next Generation to Deep Space Nine. Right. Sort of an unlikely choice, but it paid off in, in space. Obviously, once he had uh, a f- you know, family with Keiko uh, and uh, his, his child, and uh, his relationship with um, Bashir was one of the joys of uh, right. the series. Absolutely. He was kind of the Dr. McCoy of Deep Space Nine. And the Scotty. And was, the Scotty. He was Dr. What, what McCoy Scotty, and Scotty. Yeah, what if you were both of them? What if you were dessert topping and a floor wax? Mm. Delicious. <laughs> what was the cherry on top then? Um, you don't want to know. You don't know. It was really interesting too that they brought him over to be one of the principal cast members of Deep Space Nine. I thought it was a great, a great choice. Yeah. Right, but an unexpected one. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean it's not something you know that that that, that they could really promote. You know, the character you love on Star Trek: Generation right. is Chief coming O'Brien. to Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Who? <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, it's like bringing, uh, you know, Gopher, uh, you know? <laughs> I was gonna say, it's like bring Mr. LaSalle from the original series. <laughs> now, Mr. LaSalle. Is on. <laughs> My ancestry is French. Yes. Now on your favorite show, which uh, brings us. To number 49. Number 49. Number 49. And that is our first entry from Star Trek Enterprise, Cogenitor. UPN next Wednesday, an alien race gives a whole new meaning to close encounters of the third kind. Maybe we could sleep together. They need three to mate. I'm pretty familiar with how it works with two sexes, but... Oh, well, I have pictures. A provocative all-new Enterprise, Cogenitor, UPN next Wednesday at 8, 7 central. Cogenitor. Fantastic episode. You know, Cogenitor is interesting because Star Trek always wrestled with LGBT issues. And, uh, you know, the host was the first time they sort of waded into that uh, where uh, Gates uh, falls in love with this man uh, who is a trill. And then the trill ends up in a female body and she finds it uncomfortable. She can't carry on the relationship. Later, the outcast handles the issue probably a little bit better. Um and uh, but Cogenitor really tackles it head on in the sense that they basically this this alien race we encounter uh, whose leader is Andreas Kasulis from Babylon Five, just a terrific character actor who died way too young. And the one armed man, Tomalak from Next Generation. <laughs> That's right, and yeah, the one right, and, 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 and Tomalak from from Next Generation, who's wonderful, the Mark Leonard, if you will, of, uh, <laughs> and 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 um, Cogenitor. So basically, there's a surrogate. Who is, whose only job is to have babies for the couple, and they're not given any kind of human rights or a- any anything like that. They're, it's a three-gender race, and apparently they have a third gender whose only job it is is to have babies. And Trip, you know, finds the whole concept offensive. And it's a really intriguing episode because he starts to get involved with this character, this, this cogenitor, uh, you know, much to the chagrin of um, Captain... Archer and to Paul and um, you know this 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 race is not evil in any other way. They're lovely. They're friendly. They want to help us. They want to. You and know. they meet them as fellow explorers. Yeah, it's very cool. The way they, they first. It, it's it's meet. very cool. And he ends up sort of teaching this woman uh, to read. Or this not woman, whatever you know. This this th- third gender to read and to 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 do all these um, uh, and 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 to to want to have individual rights and, and, and to get out and see the world and see the Enterprise and all this stuff. And, of course, it has very dire consequences. But what I really love about it is at the end, it doesn't have a happy ending. And it, it really, uh, uh, the, the captain is put in a really untenable position and I think makes a, a very difficult argument that's really hard to get behind. I think the audience is much more sympathetic to Tripp's point of view than they are to Archer. And it's very rare in contemporary Star Trek that you see that kind of those kind of fireworks between two characters who really care about each other and both have a legitimate point of view. And there's no easy answers. Now, Enterprise is not a show I love, but this was an episode of that I thought was terrific. And that's why it's number forty nine on our list. Well, I agree too. I mean, it, it does what Star Trek does best. It 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 has a very interesting sci fi concept that totally relates back to our world. And, and and brings up concepts and, and issues that we wrestle with every day. And it evokes the spirit of the original series in the best of ways. As Absolutely. all as all of these should. <laughs> which brings us to number forty eight, which is actually mine. It's from the sixth season. It's the sixth episode of the sixth season of Deep Space Nine. It's Sacrifice of Angels, 
which is an action-packed romp through the end of the Dominion War. And uh, if you want, if you want your Star Trek jam-packed with Return of the Jedi goodness, this is it. <laughs> Ewoks? <laughs> well, no, just a lot of a lot of storylines that are going, you know, simultaneously and converging at the end. Could you yeah. imagine Warwick Davis as a Vorta? I, I'd love to see that. I'm that doing that right now. This is your Ketra Silver. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. And in terms of a television on a television budget, yeah, amazing. The visual effects, uh, the the space battles. I mean, it's unbelievable. When the Klingon fleet shows up, it's just awesome. I mean, the thing that's great about Sacrifice of Angels was that it just it delivered emotionally on so many things um, that had been promised since the the fifth season finale, um, and that the show had been building. So retaking Deep Space Nine, it really felt like a th- like, like we were getting back something important. And because the show had spent so much time with the characters like Major Kira, who had been left behind mm-hmm. on the station dealing with their new normal, um, it just it we were inside of it to kind of to feel that sense of, of liberation. So it was just it was it was great. It was everything that you would want um, out of an episode like that. And again, it looked amazing. You know, I've always maintained that the sixth season of Deep Space Nine is the most successful uh, entire season of modern Star Trek. I agree. I don't think there's a bad episode in that bunch. I mean, it's an unbelievable season of television. Yep, they were definitely firing on all cylinders. Yeah. I go along with that. No, and 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 look, that whole conflict. It was it was Star Trek waiting into serialized television, and what Ira Bear and his team of writers did was remarkable. That whole war arc, particularly in the the fifth and sixth season, because I think the fourth isn't quite as good. You know, when they're just trying to integrate Worf into the storyline. A little clumsily at first, but boy, they find their stride by season five, season six, and it's it's incredible. Incredible. Totally. Counting down. Counting down. To number 47. Number 47 uh, is a uh, is a Deep Space Nine duo, one of their many excellent two-parters. That was a show that did- We're kind of cheating, aren't we? We're a little <laughs> bit, but really it's one story that's- It's not like it's, oh, and then there's it's a whole other thing. It's one story that's two hours long. It, yeah, it, it's exactly. really like the 59 greatest episodes. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> okay. It's number 59, uh, <laughs> Homefront slash Paradise Lost, which is basically Star Trek's seven days in May, uh, in which- um, the uh, Captain Cisco and uh, Starfleet come to believe that the Dominion have launched a, basically a terrorist attack on Starfleet command. And in cooperation with Admiral Layton, um, Cisco tries to get to the bottom of it, believing that the shape changers, that the founders of, uh, of the Dominion are somehow behind it. But what we learn is that the truth is something else entirely, that the founders really had nothing to do with it at all, um, that it was really a coup d'etat uh, that had been sprung by, by Admiral Layton. And yet what's brilliant about these episodes is that the founders let us know explicitly that they didn't have to move a muscle to make any of this happen, that yes, this was all in in its own way part of their plan, but the plan worked because they let us be who we are when we follow our own worst instincts. Well, what's the most chilling line in the whole episode? Um, I would have to say that it's uh, it's it's the exchange between Cisco and his father about whether or not uh, his father is a changeling, um, and you know the whole like speech that he gives about if I were like if I were a really smart changeling, if I were really smart. I I agree that that is an amazing uh, uh, sequence, but it really is when the founders say there are only four of us on Earth. Of us on Earth. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, 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 we did all this. You gave up your civil liberties. You gave up paradise. 
over the infiltration of four changelings. And uh, it, that's it's remarkable. And it's so relevant, not only then, but today. today and, um, and we have four Trexperts here. Yeah. Which one of us is the changeling? Or uh, all, maybe all, all four of us. Are, yeah. <laughs> um, their weakness is a lack of memory. Well, clearly, based on some of these choices, someone is not. Right. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it's a great episode. But, you know, the problem with that episode is it always makes me really hungry because, of course, uh, Brock Peters plays this great chef in New Orleans oh. and he starts making the Creole and everything. Oh I'm, like, I'm like, whenever they talk about oh, Cisco man, cooking, I, could, I just right. want to, like, have some. Cooking with and Cisco. Brock Peters, Admiral Cartwright. And yeah. Darth Vader in the NPR radio show. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. there are stunning parallels I am your to father. Star Trek VI <laughs> yes, there in are. Deep Space Nine because we have many, well, three cast members from Star Trek VI who are That's also true. in. Well, and you know who else is in it who, who we love from Quester Tapes, Robert Foxworth. Yeah. Yes. Oh my you God, know. he's so great as Admiral Layton. He's really great. Yeah. It's like I, you just you love that guy even though you realize he's just bad news. He's bad news. And, and he, by the way, he's not just mustache twirling. It's like, you know, the the way that they structure that episode, and it, it really kind of plays into how Deep Space Nine did the the serialization that they did, kind of very well. Was you got it? You got why he thought he was right, and how he believed that he was the hero of that story. Um, you couldn't completely dismiss um, his ends or his his anxieties. Um, even if you know we kind of reviled his his action, but it's the worst president since Lou Ayers led the entire human race to ruin in Battlestar Galactica. The President's Federation <laughs> is like incompetent. He's getting manipulated. He's like the Jimmy Carter of Federation presidents. I mean, it's totally. I'm like, oh my god, it's you finally redeemed President Lincoln. Nadar in the saga of Star World. You know, well, thank goodness there's no presidents in. Episode 46. So it's not the Savage Curtain is what you're saying. That's right. Damn it. <laughs> but it is one of yours, Mr. Yes. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well. Number 46. Number 46. How do I get all the Enterprise episodes? This is so odd. Um, in a mirror, comma, darkly. A mutiny. Didn't think you had it in you. I'll take that as a compliment. Where's Captain Forrest? You're safe. How do I know that you didn't push him out of an airlock? I want to talk to him. Not right now. He'll remain alive as long as you don't cause any trouble. No hidden distress signals to Starfleet. I need you and your expertise. Is that all you need? You've never forgiven me for leaving. I'm sorry if I hurt you. You saw an opportunity for advancement and you took it. Just as you did. You should have been captain from the moment we left space dock. You've always known that. Oh, if it hadn't been for all those admirals conspiring behind your back, Enterprise would have been yours. Tradition says that whatever belonged to the previous captain is yours for the taking. 
I've never been one to argue with tradition. <laughs> in a mirror darkly is the um Now is this addressing someone named Darkly? In a mirror darkly. <laughs> <Ancient> darkly. <laughs> remember Ensign Darkly. So uh remember the main. But uh um, this is a wonderful, wonderful episode uh in which it's actually two, two episodes, episodes actually. It's but... a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> two parter. If our uh, top fifty three thousand in 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 which <laughs> It, the, the, it takes place entirely in the mirror universe. It's basically the fourth season when Enterprise knew they were going to be canceled, threw up their hands and said, we can do whatever we want because nobody cares. Yeah. And <laughs> they, they rebuilt the, the, the original Enterprise sets to be the de- Defiant, which is apparently traveling through interphase. It's oh. sort of weird that apparently the Tholian web is not on our list, but in a mirror darkly is. But... Um, but it's a wonderful, wonderful episode where the cast of Enterprise really comes to life. Bakula's never been better. Um, Linda Park, her best performance by far, uh, as the captain's woman, and she likes it. And uh, Empress Sato Empress... can dominate me anytime. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and it's a terrific, <laughs> and it's just a terrific two part. It looks great uh, in a in a wonderfully clever uh, nod to the audience. They change the opening credits. There's no stupid song. It's uh, <laughs> you know. It, 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 it's very, um, it's just really smart and fun and evocative of the original series, and it, and it shows the potential, the potential for, for truth. knowledge and truth, <laughs> yeah, for knowledge and, that 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 and that the show had had it, you know, been willing to take a few more risks, and it, it's just a really delightful uh, Risk episode. Wasn't their business. But you know what, what Mark, what <laughs> I found not ins- what this starship what is about. I watched that episode. I. Rick Berman, if you try to pitch a sequel to the Tholian Web Arena, Mirror Mirror, mm-hmm. in the first season of TNG or the third se- or the seventh season of TNG, Rick Berman would have laughed you out of the room. Sure, he would. But this episode is a sequel to at least three episodes of the original series, which is astonishing. It's yeah. an astonishing. But you got to realize at this point, you know, Brandon has backed off a little bit. You know, Rick is really how do I keep the movie franchise going? You know, right. and 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 you know, uh, I pretty much sees the writing on the wall with uh, the, the UPN, and um, so Manny Cotto basically is minding the store, an original series fan who can do whatever he wants, and he does. When we when we interviewed Rick and, and Brandon for the Enterprise Blu-rays, they kept joking, the only reason we did this show was to tee it up for the fourth season so Manny Cotto could come along and make it great. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is, like you said, it is amazing, and, and I think all the actors just bit into those roles. They just just chomped into them. They bit the scenery the way you've never seen it. made it so much fun to watch. Yeah, it, it's a hoot. And now, number 45. Well, uh, this is a fourth season episode of TNG, The Wounded, which introduces the Cardassians. Uh, Mark Lamo comes and plays a Cardassian captain we'd never seen. Obviously, he went on to play brilliantly. Gull Dukat. You had Bob Gutton playing Captain Maxwell, who basically has gone rogue and is doing hit-and-run operations against the Cardassians. And the Enterprise has been dispatched to sort of bring him a home. He's kind of like Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. He's, or are we being obtuse? It's <laughs> a little Bob Gutton. It's a little Bob Gutton. It's a little Shawshank. Extremely little Anson. <laughs> but, I mean, this was a great, uh, one of the great wartime episodes of Star Trek that I would you know, put up there with with Balance of Terror. 
and um, you, you find out that ultimately, spoiler alert, that Captain Maxwell was correct, and the Cardassians were doing bad, nefarious things. They were transporting arms when they shouldn't have been, and, and Bob Gutton was essentially correct, but his methods were unsound. unsound. <laughs> this, is, this is another example of what Star Trek at its best does very well. Um, you know, it, it posits these characters who do things um, that, you know, perhaps our heroes might find abhorrent just, you know, in the broad strokes. But when you look underneath it, you realize that these, there are no villains really in Star Trek. They, always said that. They all it's have a point of view. And, and if you don't give them that, they don't work. And Captain Maxwell is, is awesome. He's actually, he's one of my, my favorite next generation kind of guest characters who had a major role in this way. Um, and Patrick Stewart is phenomenal in this episode. Oh, so he, good. He has a line that has stuck with me to this day from the first time that I heard it. Engage. Uh, engage. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, that I think that sometimes we can be angry for so long that it becomes comfortable, like old leather. And soon or we America can't, today. Or, yeah. And soon we can't remember feeling any other way. And it was just- it was Max such wife. A, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Oh, but it's such a great moment because he's also telling Sushi, Maxwell- Sushi, that's what she called well, me. Yeah. Uh, he's he's telling Maxwell, I I get everything that you're saying to me. I am sympathetic to you. I'm empathetic to to the things that have happened to you. But I also know, I also know that you're full of shit, and I don't have to buy into it. And we're at loggerheads. And this was also an episode where Colomini was given a chance to uh, shine because right. that was his former captain. Right. And those kinds of uh, relationships between former captains and loyalty, it harks back to things like the Menagerie and Spock's relationship with Captain Pike. And, you know, Colomini is torn, and it was really a, a, a chance to see him at the forefront uh, of an episode for the first time. And you really saw that he was a great, effective member of the Enterprise crew. And such a great actor. Such you, a great actor. You know who another hero of that episode, the unsung hero of that episode is to me? It's Michael Westmore. And I don't often call out oh. like the makeup effects or anything, mm -hmm. but the design and the makeup for the Cardassians was a huge breakthrough for that show. Mm -hmm. For a show that you know, majority of the time is is not wrong to be tainted with the idea of funny noses and foreheads, this was a full makeup prosthetic that still let the actors power through and felt completely alien. And, yeah. and, and, and something completely new. Completely new. Uh, a completely new alien race, fully fully hatched. You know, I mean, as great as anything like the Romulans or the Klingons. Obviously, it provided the fodder for many episodes of Deep Space Nine and and also Next Generation. And uh, I just can't say any. And also, um, uh, Bob Blackburn's uh, Blackman. Blackman, Bob Blackman, uh, uh, the wardrobe, the the the, yes. the the armor. I mean, that was really a triumph uh, in this episode. Although they did have those weird head pieces that I'm glad that they got rid of. That sort of got right in the middle of the the right. faces of the Cardassians. But I, I agree with you. I think the the look of the Cardassians, the feel of the Cardassians, and Alamo's performance. You know, even though he wasn't playing Ducat. Uh, he's, it's a trial he's run. So good, and, so good. and it, it, they did that a lot in modern Star Trek. They would have an actor come in, and if they if they left an indelible impression, they would bring them back uh, in, in a much more substantial role. The Usually same thing with Combs. the aliens, because I think if they felt people could power through the makeup, 
then they were worth bringing back. You didn't have it as much with the, uh, but you know, there were the, the old chestnut. I mean, Susie Plaxton, Mark Alamo, Vaughn Armstrong, you know, that they kept Jeff bringing, Combs. Jeff Combs, obviously. Tony Todd. Tony, who they would keep bringing back in multiple roles. Um, and it was fine because I, I normally don't like that because in a universe that's so familiar as Star Trek, you're like, oh my God, that's the same actor. But if they're playing an alien, I think it's okay. Yeah, I agree. And so, now, number 44. We are going to travel back to time literally and figuratively, to 1973 for Star Trek the Animated Series, the first episode that uh, represents that show in our list. It is Yesteryear, uh, the story of uh, young Spock and uh, the the time accident that uh, ceased him from becoming uh, in Starfleet. The old yeller. The, right. old, Star Trek. the old yeller of Star Trek universe. Is it Ichea or Ichea? You know, I think you know, and you're just baiting him. <laughs> you're baiting him. Yes. <laughs> I chaya. The, the, yeah. the, the sellet or the salot, depending it's salot. on. Of course it like is. Sorek. Yeah. yeah. But McCoy says sellet in. It's the southern journey accent. To, journey to Babel. Sellet. Yeah. That hurts it? worse than uniform. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, but uh, it's it's a glorious uh, journey into uh, Star Trek's canonical past. And it was written by Dorothy Fontana. And so, naturally, it is canon. Uh, and a, a little bit of it was uh, ripped off for Star Trek 2009, mm-hmm. actually. Um, we, uh, we see... Inspired by it. Yeah. We see Spock uh, dealing with his uh, really mean and sort of beep-holish uh, classmates. Uh, You're a Terran, Spock. Yeah, you mean Terran. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, really, it's really fun to see this, you know, young version of Spock and the, and the, you know, the bullying he went through on Vulcan. You wouldn't expect Vulcans to be bullies, but I guess they are. It's only logical. It's only logical to bully the, you know, half-human freak. Right. Uh, Half-breed. <laughs> Genetically impure. But, you know, we also have the return of Mark Leonard as Sarek. Uh, um, uh, Majel is playing uh, Amanda in this one. Um, but it's, it's Not Miss Jane Wyatt. Not Miss Jane Wyatt. The prime of Miss Jane Wyatt. Um, but it's, uh, it's really wonderful, and it's, uh, it's, fun to, uh, it's fun to explore this story. I, I wish that, uh, you know, back when I was doing fan films, we we're approaching the idea of doing a live action version of this mm. and it would have been fairly interesting cuz uh you know we were in talks to have it uh, expanded into an hour so anyway it was it was can you imagine uh, Warwick Davis playing young spock in fact i can oh, okay. <laughs> you know it's it's just uh it's just a terrific episode um I, I, I'm glad to see the animated series getting some love on this list. It deserves it. Uh, you know, DC Fontana, you know, pour her heart out. Anyone who's ever lost a pet can relate to this episode. Yep. And to think that this was, you know, Saturday morning television circa 1973 is really extraordinary. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to number 43. That would be the first duty. Next generation. Uh, next generation where they bring back Wesley Crusher, who had left the series. And they bring him back. Uh, we see him at uh, Starfleet Academy. There has been a, a, an accident. We have Robert Duncan McNeil first showing up in the Star Trek universe playing a cadet and a showboater who is trying to prove his mettle by having his flying team uh, perform a, a, a starburst. What is it? The something Culver 
Culver, Culver Starburst. Something. It's he's, a maneuver. He's basically Tom Cruise. He's, yeah. Yes, he's Tom Cruise, but but he Top failed. Top Gun, Star Trek style. And and there were lives lost in in this accident. And he is this charismatic guy, and his remaining teammates are covering up for his misdeed, and including Wesley. And there's we we meet Boothby. For the first time at Starfleet Academy, Ray Walston, Ray, Ray Walston, who was amazing, uh, my favorite Martian, and he was also <laughs> Borgnine. He was yeah. Mr. Hand in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Wow. If you remember that, uh, and we, oh, we yes, really, I do. <laughs> we really see that there's a great uh, bit between Captain Picard and Wesley. I mean, Picard shows very uh, much disappointment in his young protege, uh, as he and, should, because Wesley's a screw up. Well, he might be a screw up, but <laughs> it, it really. It was an interesting look for the very first time. We saw a little bit of Starfleet Academy's entrance exam in the first season of TNG, but this really gave us a, a glimpse at what Starfleet Academy is. It created, again, world-building, canonical lore, mm-hmm. and it you really know why has... I love it, Rob? They kept the bell. Bing! From Space right. Heat and Court... Right. And, and oh. Bing! Yes. They, you know. It's just a fantastic episode of Star Trek, and it really encompasses... I mean, look... Like the best Star Trek episodes, it is a we've seen things like this before in movies. You know, we go back to things like school ties or even scent of a woman later when you have young uh, charges in in school covering up for each other. Uh, it's a timeless story, but it really is really well done in the in the Star Trek context. And yeah. it, it's really for me, it was kind of the the first time, maybe the only time that I really felt like Wesley was in Starfleet. Right. That he really felt like he was a part of that that tapestry, and he and, and Will Wheaton is great in that episode. The person who kind of steals the episode is Robbie McNeil. Yeah, he is just great. He is so great that they put him onto Voyager, and in fact, he was originally supposed to be the Lieutenant, same character. The same character, but then you know, residuals got in the way. Yeah, they didn't want to pay. <laughs> they didn't want to pay for the character rights. Yeah, which is not that expensive. Right, it's not that expensive at all. You know, it's just you have to pay the writer who wrote the original episode. Right. Uh, once you you use their character again, but it's it's a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. But I guess they figure for over seven years that it's. But still, it's ridiculous. I mean, it, it would have been an interesting nod, kind of back to that that moment that would have really connected Voyager back to the next generation, and it would have. I, I think it would have been good for the show, like in a, in a meta way. But still, um, Robbie McNeil is just he's awesome. He's awesome. No, yeah, he, he, really he he's great in that. He's great in Voyager. Yep. You know, terrific actor, terrific young actor. The ensemble was good. I mean, Shannon Phil is one of the cadets is good. I mean, it's it, you know, seeing Starfleet Academy is 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 fun. A beautiful matte painting shot at the Sepulveda reclamation plant where Rob and I shot uh, Free Enterprise yep. uh, for the Logan's Run, the 23rd Century City. Looked great. And their their love scenes strolling through the uh, Japanese garden. Mhm. That's right. That's right. Uh well, there we are. There we are. There you are. Okay. Well, that was episode 43, The First Duty. Episode 42, A Taste of Armageddon. It's instinct. The instinct can be fought. We're human beings with the blood of a million savage years on our hands. But we can stop it. We can admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. That's all it takes. Knowing that we're not going to kill today. Just a taste. The, the, just a little, a little taste. A little lick. Uh, Brock, uh, Brock Peters made it. A uh, lick of Armageddon. Here, try this. It's a taste of Armageddon. How does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll center of the Armageddon pop? I, I Our first know, photo novel. That's right. I also want to note, it is the first episode of the original series to make an appearance in our 
top 50, 51. Wow. Uh, list uh, coming in at 42. Um, a Taste of Armageddon. You know, for those of you young millennials that maybe aren't as familiar <laughs> with the original series, you, you know, you're, you would look at this episode and think, oh, it looks cheesy. And I, look, this is guilty of all the sins that people accuse the original series of being. You know, it, it is a cheap looking episode. None of that matters. You know why? Because it's freaking great. And at the heart of it is this incredible story about these two planets that are in an endless war, but rather than see their culture destroyed. Aminiar and Vendicar. What great names. Mm-hmm. That Pop and Jay Fox. In fact, I almost and, named my twins that. Aminiar and Vendicar and, did and, not. And, and, did. and they, are, they send, computers decide on casualties, and they send the victims into, they have 24 hours to report to disintegration chambers. It's a destructionless war. And the Enterprise is uh, considered a casualty, and now they have to send their crew into the disintegration cha- chambers. Now, do you think Captain Kirk does that? Of course. Hell he, no. He can't interfere, so he beams yeah. down the crew, and they all and the are episode's sent to, over. And the 15 episode's minutes. Over. No, that's not what happens. It is yeah, what does a he look very like? powerful episode about the nature and the futility of war, and it is capped by the great... I mean, people say risk is our business is the great Shatner no, speech. No, this is a better one. Yeah, it is. This speech written by Gene Kuhn, one of the first things he ever wrote for the show, is phenomenal about where Kirk says, you know, what does Kirk say? Oh, I, I didn't memorize this one, but the, the, the end of it, he says, we could admit that we are a killing species, but that we won't kill today. That's all it takes. Just being able to say we are not going to kill. Today, but David Apatu, Apatu, when he says, when he says, when he says to Kirk, you know, he says, you know, you're general, you're general order twenty four. You said it yourself. You're a killer species, and yeah. and you know, and 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 Shatner is Kirk is, you know, but all it takes is saying, I'm not going to kill today. You're right. We are a killer species. Yeah. I mean, it's so great because he's acknowledging the fact that humanity is flawed and and jingoistic and all, but we we have to look inside ourselves right. and restrain our baser instincts. That we're capable it's, of choices. It, we're capable of making choices. It's such a great episode in 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 so many of those ways. And you know, look, I'm not this huge Scotty fan, but Scotty has some great scenes where he stands up to the mealy mouth dipu- diplomat, right. that Poppin' Jay Fox, and you know, he says, "I order you to order the shields," and he says, "No, sir," <laughs> and he just he will not listen to the ambassador. He he says, "Until Captain Kirk tells me to lower those shields, I will not do it. I will not comply." And you know, it's it's that loyalty that Captain Kirk commands from his crew. I won't do it. <laughs> you can't make me. You can't. And all of a sudden, then he's wearing like the coconut bra, which is right. really weird. You don't expect now, that. Can we can we talk a little bit about Gene Kuhn? Of course. Because to me, I mean, that moment is so emblematic of Gene Kuhn and what he brought to Star Trek and how his influence was felt even across generations. I know that um, that in the because this was then then conveyed to us when when uh, we started working on Andromeda with Robert Wolf, who was a producer, writer, producer on um, on Deep Space Nine. Who'll that, be joining us for a future episode of Inglorious Trexperts? Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, he told us that, you know, when they would encounter a difficult story problem on Deep Space Nine, they would ask themselves a question. What would Gene do? Gene Kuhn. And if you think about kind of the, the sort of the themes of A Taste of Armageddon and, and, and what Gene Kuhn brought to the show, like you can feel that in Deep Space Nine. You, know, you can feel Kirk's speech about, you know, we will not kill today. Uh, in the the Dominion War in Deep Space Nine, my mm-hmm. God, you can you can even feel it. Like we were just talking about the wounded, 
right? It's like you can feel it. And it's just, it's something that is just, it's a part of Star Trek that I think we sometimes forget, right. you know, but it's, but it's hugely important. That these characters aren't perfect. They are human beings, and yes. human beings have problems, but they also have the intellect and the capacity for feelings to overcome that. Yes. Very much so. And, uh, you know, you really see, see Cisco come into his own when that axiom starts to be applied. What would Gene Kuhn do? Yes. And you see Avery's performance just rise and, 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 and you know, come. I mean, it's just, he, he's so good. He's so neutered those first couple of seasons. And by the time you get to season four and he, he has the goatee and he shaves his head and he's given these great speeches, these great Shatner-esque speeches, he, he's, he anchors that series. It's, it's amazing what a transformation he's gone through. So let's continue the countdown with number 41. The Drumhead, which, frankly, also I think um, has a... The Drumhead was a... Was a was it a fourth season episode of The Next Generation? Yes. Uh, and I, I think it also has a, a touch of, of Gene Kuhn in it. Um, basically, this is another... This is a Star Trek story where, um, you know, the uh, there's a there's an act of sabotage. Sabotage? Sabotage. This is sabotage. <laughs> sabotage. 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 Uh, sabotage is, uh, is committed... And, uh, and, you know, all eyes sort of turn to a Klingon crew member, and there's an investigation, right? It's an episode that's really about paranoia, but then it becomes an episode about, um, about a witch hunt, um, about, uh, you know, sacrificing, you know, our, our rights. It becomes an episode about, you know, how, you know, the, the, you know if, you, if you trade, like, liberty for security, you deserve neither. And what really anchors this episode, and I think earns it its spot here on the top 50, which is actually 51, but probably closer to like 75 with all the two-parters, <laughs> um, is- All the cheating going yeah, on. Yeah, it's, it's the scene where um, the, the admiral who's conducting the investigation- Admiral Sati. Admiral Sati decides to inter- interrogate uh, Captain Picard. And frankly, I mean, first of all, Patrick Stewart brings it as he always does, uh, but Captain Picard- Owns her in the face, man. I mean, it's like it's like it's a great statement of, of principle. It's it's Captain Picard basically saying it, it's a version of you know we will not kill today, mm-hmm. saying no, I'm I am not. And I, I first of all I can't do a Patrick Stewart, and secondly I don't have the dialogue memorized. But the essence of what Picard says is, I don't have to play by these rules because they're wrong, and this isn't who we are. And if that's who you expect me to be, if that's who you expect us to be. Um, then take me away because Calgon. this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like this. It's you know, take me away, Calgon. We're battling. Yeah, well, and he, then he goes and he takes a bath, and that's a weird scene. They almost cut it, but then they're like, "Come on, it's Patrick." Call me. has his Irish yeah. spring. Yeah. Yeah. What's amazing also about this this episode is is the great Gene Simmons comes and plays Admiral. Not, not from Kiss. <laughs> no, not, not not from Kiss. Back well, in yeah, classic. Gun, I mean, I Gene Simmons was a, was a huge star. Was in some great 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 films. War Pig. Was it Spartacus? <laughs> is it Spartacus? Yeah, Gene Spartacus. Simmons. I mean, amazing, amazing actress, and and what's interesting, I remember when we were interviewing Michael Dorn for the TNG documentaries. It was the first time like he couldn't believe that Gene Simmons was going to be on the show. He just was like, "She's going to be on our show," yeah. like how, because Michael Dorn is a huge classic film fan. He has a, a, a very a, a wide-reaching knowledge of of classic cinema. And he was just blown away. Like, he couldn't believe that she was going to be on the show. And she gives this great performance, especially... Chilling. Uh, there's a lot of actors that give these performances that become more and more unhinged, you know, as the episode goes on, building on my work. <laughs> you know, and she's one of the great 
I mean, by the end, it, you feel you're, you're she becomes she, scarier yet more hinged. Well, she's <laughs> yeah. it's just so sad yeah. watching her. She's somebody. She's Roy Cohn. It, yeah. Yes, and it's just her performance by the end when she actually explodes and you realize she's batshit nuts. Yes, and you just feel for her. You yes. you hate her, but you also are like oh, and you realize again. There are no villains in Star Trek. There are only antagonists. Yes. Well, look, I, the only thing I would add about that episode is to think we've gone from Shades of Grey to this. Because, you know, Shades of Grey was written to be the equivalent of a bottle show. They had no money, so they did what they always did in the 70s and 80s, an awful clip show. Now, you can get away with that on Buck Rogers when it's the Cosmic Whiz Kid reliving, you know, <laughs> Blast for Buck. When you're reliving, you know, Planet of the Slave Women and all this stuff, you can do it with Gil Gerard. You can't do it on Star Trek. There's no question the Shades of Grey where Riker gets injured and has to relive uh, his memories of previous adventures. It doesn't work anymore. It, 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 it demeans your show and it, it's embarrassing. So they ran the same problem for fourth season. They had no money. So what do you do? How do you do a bottle show that isn't an embarrassment to the show? Well, you do the drumhead. And it just goes to show that you don't need money to make a great episode or a great drama because this is one of the great Star Trek dramas with with absolutely no money and it is in many ways uh, the precursor to what you talked about with Homefront and Paradise Lost. Yep. Uh, it's a very similar theme. So this brings us to number 40. Which is timeless, Darren. It's timeless. Is it? Uh, this is a Voyager episode and it was written by Brandon Braga and Joe Minoski. I, I can't think of a more Brandon Braga or Joe Minoski script than this. Uh, it takes place 15 years in the future where Chakotay and, and Harry Kim are looking for a missing Voyager that crashed in a slipstream mishap uh, when it's trying to get home and Starfleet's given up. And it, it's again, they've created an alternate future, which Voyager pretty much did every other episode. Um, yet it, it is a very compelling time travel story. And um it's one of those sort of out there time travel concepts that I'm sure Brandon Braga and Joe, a night of doing whatever they did when they would get together. <laughs> too much LDS. Well, yeah, LDS. They're doing too much LDS, as they always did. You know, probably when Minoski was like, hey, you know, I wrote masks. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, it's, 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 it's something along those lines. But, again, a compelling story. I mean, the visual of the, of the Voyager crashing on that icy planet is, is irresistible. And, of course... For whatever reason, Voyager, they, they fell back on these time travel, changing the past, changing the future conceits way too often for my taste. But when they did it well, like in this episode, it was really compelling television because you, you want to see, like, how are they going to save their friends? How are they going to get the Voyager back? What's going to happen? Uh, even though I think it's, it's a cheap ploy, but in this case, it was a really well done episode. Well, that sounds great. I'm gonna have to watch it one day. <laughs> that really that sounds interesting. I, I, I definitely, uh, you know, thanks, thanks for hipping me to this episode. <laughs> Look, Make it's a, funny. I'm making a note here. I mean, you and I, when when you were the editor in chief of Sci-Fi Universe magazine, many I mean, many years ago, Brandon Braga was our foil. He was like this villain. No, that's not that's not true. That's well, not but true. We, but, he was an but antagonist. I mean, no, no, but he was. <laughs> but he would come. And we got to interview him. Of course, Amanda yeah, it, was yeah, friends we, with him. It was the whole thing was a was a theatrical act of because course, that's what Amanda I mean. did 
this article, Is Brandon Bragg of the Devil, playing into the fan <laughs> antipathy, where he dressed up in a smoking jacket in his red velvet room, and, you know, it was, like, shadowy, and, and we had, you know, he was in on the joke, we were in on the joke. Absolutely. But he had a smoking jacket and a red velvet room. <laughs> but, but, but that's what I mean. He was the howling man. Did you ever let him out of the room? <laughs> no, hey, look, no one threw a better party than Brandon Braga. That's for fuck. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Sorry, Apple. And, and I have to Not say, I have to say, when we were doing the Enterprise documentaries, nobody was more generous and forthcoming of their time as as Brandon was. I think Brandon, to his credit, um, people don't realize how much he cares about not only his work but his legacy. And I think he's done a really great job of of of, of celebrating the triumphs and also trying to examine you know what may have not have been as, as successful. Because when you're he's used hindsight to look back. You know what he did right and what he did wrong, and I, I really credit him for that. I, I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I think you know he did some really significant shows, and what he brought to Star Trek, you know, these these, these mind bending, mind altering sci-fi uh, 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 conceits, you know, was something the show was missing. You look at what Mar- Mar- Michael uh, Michael Hurley, what uh, Hurley Maurice Hurley was doing with stuff like Times Squared, which was just. A disaster, and then you know you look at something like Clues or Parallels, which Brandon did. It's so much better thought out, so much more interesting. Well, Brandon, you know he 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 liked horror. You know he liked writers like Clive Barker, and he was bringing literary concepts uh, to Star Trek, which I think it modern Star Trek missed a little bit, and especially his time travel stories like Parallels uh, and this and Timeless. Was 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 the best in the best traditions of literary sci-fi. Really heady concepts based in physics and based in 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 mathematics and and uh, it was or the, good. Or at the very least, the, the fascination with that. And look, you know, we're talking about a guy whose uh, whose student film was of a man eating himself. I mean, that should tell you everything that you need to know about, what like, are about the sensibility. Right. Clive Barker, right. you know, John Carpenter. They, you know, he didn't grow up on the original Star Trek the way we did. Right. You know, so his influences were different. But at the same time, you know, I give him credit. I, yeah, I don't like an absolutely. episode like Sub Rosa, but it's so out there and so different. You know, I respect the attempt. Right. Yeah. What's interesting, also, he came in through the Writers Guild, correct me if I'm wrong, the Writers Guild intern That's right. program. That's and, and he didn't know where he was going to wind up. Like, he literally fell into Star Trek. You know, it was not something, unlike like Ron Moore, who wrote a, right. wrote a uh, spec script. Into the I feel like I read an interview with him where he's talking about, like, the internship where, like, first prize was, like, a month-long internship. Second on, prize second, was, second, 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 second prize was, was, was Actually, second prize was two months. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and look, he talks about it in Ed Gross's book and mine, uh, The 50-Year Mission. And, I, I, you know, Brandon uh, has some really interesting insights to, to, to offer about, I think, his tenure on, on multiple shows. Well, if we're going to make it out of this uh, episode, Alive? we're going to need yeah. to we're going to need to move a little move along home as it goes. As <laughs> well, it goes, that's the fifty worst episodes <laughs> so, of Star yes. Trek. <laughs> we're up to number thirty nine from the original series, The Changeling. I am nomad. I am perfect. That which is imperfect must be sterilized. You are in error. You did not discover your mistake. You have made two errors. You are flawed and imperfect. And you have not corrected by sterilization. You've made three errors. Error, 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 examine. You are flawed and imperfect. Execute your prime function. I shall analyze error. Analyze error. 
this is uh, this is the one that some people think was the uh, inspiration for Star Trek the Motion Picture. I I disagree. This is uh, the story of how the Enterprise encounters what used to be the Nomad space probe, who has been through an accident, quote unquote, and uh, has merged with this alien probe called Tan Ru, and has changed his programming to become a destruction machine, basically. And uh, he goes around uh, destroying that which is, quote, imperfect. Sterilize. So, yeah. Must it's, sterilize. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the scariest, uh, quote, you know, antagonists that uh, they encounter because it's so powerful. It and he's has... looking for the creator, right? Right. And so it has nothing to do with Star Trek The Motion Picture. Well, no, <laughs> this doesn't sound at he's, all like The Motion he's Picture. Not looking he's for not looking for the creator. He mistakes Captain James Kirk's name for his creator, Jackson Roy Are you Kirk. my mother? So really, it's a it's an adaptation of that children's book, Are You My Mother? Correct. Okay. <laughs> I thought I was its mother, didn't it? <laughs> Somebody was in England and saw a Doctor Who episode in the sure. 60s and like, we're going to have a Dalek of our own. <laughs> but it's it's great in in the in the tradition of uh, you know a super powerful uh, computer robot uh, uh, killing people, bringing them back to life, and Kirk being able to talk it into destroying itself. It's just amazing. Using logic and and, and clear thinking. Sure, proving Honestly. that it is in fact imperfect. Proving that it itself is uh, imperfect. Talking and it, a computer into destroying itself is one of my favorite superpowers exhibited by Captain Kirk. P.S. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, number thirty-eight. Arman Bashir, a delightful confection on Deep Space Nine. It showed the elasticity of the Deep Space Nine format. You could go from a powerful drama like the pilot, Emissary, to a slight popcorn episode like Arman Bashir, where they just have fun with all the Bondian tropes. Basically, uh, Alexander Siddig plays Dr. Bashir. He goes, uh, he pretends he's James Bond in the holodeck. Shockingly, there's a holodeck malfunction. What? And uh, <laughs> or James Coburn. He gets trapped yes. in, uh, in in a Bond movie, basically. And uh, the the through uh, techno babble, all the other actors are now uh, the um, characters in the, including Avery Brooks as a just delightful Doctor Noah with the eye patch and everything else. So and, and Nana Visitor plays a KGB spy. Mona loves it. Uh, Mona Mona loves it. That's right. <laughs> And, uh, Why, and, of course she does. The entire... <laughs> I must be dreaming. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, right idea, wrong pussy, 007. Um, <laughs> so uh, just a super episode. You know, Ron Moore, again, just proving what a facile writer he was, where he could go from the Shakespearean drama of the Klingon arc to, you know, a light confection like Armand Bashir. It's just super fun, and another reason why Deep Space Nine is probably the most underrated and overlooked of the Star Trek series. Exactly. So let's go over back to TOS again, just to cleanse the palate a little bit. Um, it's Assignment Earth, the uh, intended spin-off series uh, from... TOS, uh, we meet Gary Seven, who is a human brought uh, uh, away f when he was young from Earth by aliens. We don't know really who they are, but they're fascinatingly powerful. And uh, Gary Seven is in 1968. And apparently, Captain, so are we, uh, because they use the light speed breakaway factor to uh, study ancient Earth for some reason. We don't know why. But the Enterprise is there. Hey, and we know why, because Gene Roddenberry wanted a spinoff. Sure. Yeah. 
and it's it's a lot of fun. Terry Gar uh, shows up as this uh, as this hapless assistant who uh, gets enmeshed in the adventure, and uh, we see Kirk and Spock walking the streets of uh, supposed New York with uh, with uh, you know long trench coats and hats, and it's very fun. Lots of great stock footage of Cape Kennedy. Yeah. It's uh, you know what I love the setup for this. I yeah, wish there had been a TV series assignment Earth, because um, it's a lot of fun. You know, it, it has that secret agent stuff too. Well, you know, there are and, rumors that CBS All Access might be developing a Gary Seven series. Well, well, I would love that. Weirdly, if it's good. so, would I? But I think it'd be the, awesome. I mean, the, to me, the thing if about Assignment Earth was that you know it kind of it expanded the Star Trek universe. Yeah. But it, even though it it never did anything with the stuff that was there, just watching it, you felt like, oh, there's this whole other corner of things that are that are happening. It just made it feel bigger. That's funny. I, I thought that the CBS animated uh, comedy show was called Assignment Mirth. But um, bum. Thank you. <laughs> I'll be here all week. They can't all be gold, man. <laughs> try, try the try the cupla. <laughs> okay, uh, great episode. Great episode of the original series. Super way to end the second season. Um, and Terry Gar. And Terry Gar is super fun. She's great. And that black cat, awesome. Isis. 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 I, yeah, <laughs> Almighty Isis. Not is named. Isis not or... named. You know, you're a funny guy, but funny guys <laughs> go away. But you know what doesn't go away? The number, joy of tapestry. Number, th- number 36. Uh, another fine episode of Extraction from the Tape pen Street. of Ron Moore. <laughs> tapestry. <laughs> I, this room the pastry. Has, <laughs> Next. The, ta- the tapestries really tie the room together. So uh, this is an episode in which uh, we find out how Picard uh, needed an artificial heart um, after um, he was uh, in a fight with these Nausicans. Um, there is and the a, Valley of the Wind. Yeah. And uh, it's a Q episode, but very uh, atypical Q episode where uh, Patrick Stewart's Picard is able, we're, we're able to learn a lot more about that character, and he relives this sort of crucial time in his past. It's a really um, wonderful uh, and how deep he dive would have into been character. A, a, a lame ass, uh, uh, you know, had he not remember. Well, it's really interesting because. Um, Ron Moore, and I'm not sure I agree with his interpretation, talks about how, in his mind, Kirk was a very bookish, by-the-rules kind of guy who then became this, you know, wild man who follows his id, whereas he felt that Patrick Stewart, Picard, was a guy who was actually pretty wild and then became more buttoned down. I'm not sure I agree with that. I, yeah, I don't either. But, but, uh, crap. It's a... I, just, I just realized that uh, that I might have ripped off... Xavier's arc in uh, first class <laughs> from this episode. It all, it's all about Patrick Stewart. You heard it here first. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. Sorry. Are residuals in order? <laughs> it's just a terrific episode, and, and it, it shows uh, Next Generation firing on all cylinders. And, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. For you sure. play dumb jock. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're the dumb jock. <laughs> Let's go to number 35. That would be Unity. Uh, That was an episode written by Ken Biller, and it was directed by Robert Duncan McNeil, Tom Paris himself, uh, who now has a great uh, TV directing career. This is one of the episodes that started to ruin the Borg, in my mind. Um, We we meet members (laughs) of the- You do get the idea of this list. Best episode. (laughs) No, I understand, but, but in my mind- it is a great episode. I think it's a great episode where we meet a, a group of Borg that are cut off from the collective and they want nothing more to, than to have their neural net reassembled, re-put back together, and they want their Borg cube 
turned back on, essentially, and they forced Chakotay to do this. Um, again, on one hand, it, it it's a really interesting, uh, fascinating look at the Borg Collective and what happens, and I thought this happened too much on Voyager, but it's still made for interesting science fiction and interesting Star right. Trek because it was about people. You know, the, it, it, it humanized the Borg. And but in you, the right way. But yes, but in the right way. Because there is this idea if that you are part of a collective and then you get cut off. I mean, that, that is a question that, that I think many people, if you start to ponder the Borg Collective, what would happen if? So it's a great what-if story. To me, that's always the best story is what if this were to occur? And it does a really good job of examining the plight of these of these characters. Uh, and that that was taken uh, uh, and used, and they leapt forward with that in in subsequent episodes of Voyager. But but it's a heartfelt episode, and uh, I think it's a, a beautifully done episode. I just you know objected to the fact that the board could become so human again. But, Objection. You know they brought back they brought back the makeup effects from Star Trek: First Contact. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a lush, beautiful looking episode of TV and a compelling episode of Star Trek. Yeah, it was a it was an interesting way into telling a story about the Borg that we hadn't seen before. Exactly. The problem was that they then like kind of ran with the wrong ball on that. Yes, but um, Robert Duncan McNeil's directing in that episode was fantastic. P.S. It also it's it is a beautiful looking episode. Yeah, it really. It is. has real scope to it, so it's a pleasure just to watch. I agree. Ashley, you want to tell us about number 34? No, actually, I don't. All right, thanks. Uh, okay, number 34. <laughs> um, I'm 34. Number 34. Uh, How many Next lights Generations. Are there? Yes, exactly. Next Generations, a uh, classic chain of command two-parter, uh, which is, the, the, the short version is that Captain Picard goes on a secret mission um, into Cardassian space, leaving Ronnie Cox as Captain Jellicoe in command of the Enterprise. Bookmark how much I love Captain Jellicoe. I would have had gets no problem done. watching the rest of TNG with Captain Jellicoe. Absolutely. The get great it done. Ronnie Cox. The yep. great Dick Jones Cox. from Robocop or from Deliverance. Yes. Right. Uh, and uh, Dick, you're fired. That wasn't Deliverance. That was Robocop. But, <laughs> yes. Although Dick, you're fired would have that been was hilarious. Early from Halloween 3. Paul <laughs> uh, Cochran saying that. So the, uh, the, the two-parter takes this amazing turn at the end of the first part where Captain Picard is captured by the Cardassians and the second half of the episode, look, a lot of cool shit is happening on the Enterprise between Riker and Jellicoe and like Riker kind of finding his place under this new guy. But, but the heart of this episode is Captain Picard's interrogation, which is harrowing and brutal and it's very simple. It is just trying to get Captain Picard to say something that he knows is not factually true just to demonstrate that he has completely submitted to the torture. And it's funny because these days it would probably become a meme. There are four lights! And, you know, it would be all over the fucking place. But, sorry, Apple. Uh, but it's great. Patrick Stewart just brings it. It's just, it's one of his best performances. And... You know, when he goes back to the Enterprise, look, this is at a time when Star Trek didn't live from episode to episode in a serialized way. But at the, le the very least, when he comes back to the Enterprise, um, we feel like we're meeting a, a Captain Picard who's been through a thing, that mm -hmm. um, that that he's going to have a, a, a long road to really um, to, to deal with all of this. And because it's Patrick Stewart, he has so much credibility for us. It's like, even though the next episode he's probably off doing something goofy, uh, 
we believe that we just uh, we believe the emotions of the end of chain of command. Well, he was passionate about this episode, and he was very involved, and probably still is, with Amnesty International. So this episode meant a lot to him, and as such, it means a lot to the audience. It's it's, it's a terrific episode. What's interesting about that episode, the second half of that, uh, it was written by Frank Abbott Marco, who was brought on board the sixth season because Berman and Pillar were so busy with Deep Space Nine that Frank Abbott Marco was brought in and really it was on the first half of the sixth season and he was also passionate about, he took a, a story about something that happened in a Russian gulag and, and transposed it to the Star Trek episode and it, it was really interesting. I thought he was a, an interesting addition to the writing staff and the producing staff of Star Trek and this is what came out of that. Yeah. So Rob, tell us about number 33. Number 33 is The Forge. The Forge is a fourth season Enterprise episode. It was written by Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens, who wrote all of Shatner's Star Trek books with him. They're two of my favorite Star Trek novelists. Uh, they um, they wrote Prime Directive, which I think is one of the finest Star Trek novels ever written. And this really delves into, you find out there's a, a Vulcan separatist movement. It opens with an explosion, an attack on the Earth embassy on Vulcan. And it kicks off a multi-part uh, series that really delves into uh, Vulcan history. And and uh, it is, I think, a wonderful, wonderful episode. Uh, it, it is evocative of the original series. We, we meet a character uh, from the original series. I don't want to say who because we spoil it. I guess so. It's pow. Um, you know. Uh, what haven't we spoiled? <laughs> but I know. Why and, and stop it, now? It's really just a it's a great ep ep episode and it shows what Enterprise was do when Enterprise was was really harking back to what they should have originally been doing which was uh showing us what had been showing us what the original series promised and and it really delved into the history of TOS and the history of the Star Trek universe in grand fashion and this episode is one of the great Vulcan episodes of the show. Yeah, it's the beginning of Enterprise doing these mini arcs for a season, so the production values are much better. I don't like the follow-up episodes of The Forge as much as The Forge. I think The Forge is terrific. Terrific. Where it goes is less interesting, but this is a, a really wonderful episode, and it looks great, and there's a lot of um, uh, call-outs to Yesteryear, very influenced by the animated series Yesteryear, and the Reeves Stevens are huge Star Trek fans, and it shows in every frame of this episode. And speaking of the animated series, that leads me to number 32, the first episode of the animated series, Beyond the Farthest Star, one of my favorites. Uh, the Enterprise encounters this ancient, ancient, like millions of years old starship. Old. Yeah. Um, that is, uh, you know, it's these uh, sort of, uh, you know, grown pods and, and uh, spun metal. And it's, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, the, Uhura says uh, they, uh, they gave it uh, grace and beauty. And uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's a scary little episode because it has, uh, you know, ancient messages from uh, warnings from the alien creatures who lived on the ship and, and uh then a uh, an energy being takes control of the ship, and it's it's a lot of fun in you know twenty six minutes. Well, it is written by Sam Peoples, who wrote "Where No Man Has Gone Before," That's the correct. second Star Trek pilot. It's also the only episode of the animated series where the entire cast was in the recording studio together. That's so I think right. it's also some of the best performances uh, of any of the episodes, it, 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 because later on you have the ep the actors you know recording themselves separately, separately, and 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 recording studios all over the country. And that's why there's so many mispronunciations, much like the audio version of my book. And uh, I think uh, it, it's. Um, it, it's, it's a really great way to kick off that series. 
So let's go to 31, Ashley. So from beyond the farthest star, we go far beyond the stars. There you go. <laughs> uh, a truly lovely, uh, deeply emotional, deeply emotional episode of uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, it's a bravura performance from Avery Brooks, um, who's Captain Cisco And directing. And directing, that's right. Uh, it's essentially a time travel episode of a sort, um, almost a quantum leap, um, even though Scott Bakula is not in it, <laughs> uh, where uh, he becomes a, a black science fiction writer uh, from the 1950s. What year is it in that episode? It's I think it was like maybe 54, maybe? Yeah. Something and, like that? And he is desperately trying to get published. He's desperately trying to get recognition. Um, and he simply cannot because of the color of his skin, because of who he is. And the thing that is just truly, and it dawns on you as you're watching the show happening, that the science fiction story that he's telling is the story of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Like, to the point where if you look, like, at his walls, where he's begun to scrawl things, right, because he, he just can't keep up with all the story in his head, um, it looks like a writer's room. If you've ever been yeah. in one, it looks like crazy people have taken over, and there's, <laughs> and there's shit all over the walls where people have written, like, in Sharpies, and, and that's what's happening. That's what's happening on Benny's walls, and it is... It is just, it is heartbreaking. Um, and it is such an amazing meditation on racism, on um, being the person that you want to be and not being allowed to be that person. It is a meditation on being an artist. Uh, it's so many things. and But again, it just, it emotionally, it, it kicks you in the ass. And it does what, I think when Star Trek is at its best and it does like, it, you know, you can say, oh, well, it's really an allegory for whatever. It's... This is also an episode where the allegory is very personal, um, and it's, again, just incredibly deeply felt. Number 30 is another Next Generation episode uh, that uh, I know certainly Rob and I both oh, love. One of I my love very favorites. Uh, it, it's another example of when Star Trek gets off their stages and onto location. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. The crew discovers the sole survivors of an alien massacre. The attacking force prepared you for some reason. They're guarding a dark secret. Stop! A mystery that's destroying Troy's brain. A threat that's attacking the Enterprise. Commence rapid fire with all weapons on full. On Star Trek, the next generation. It really opens up the episode. This, this, you know what? This actually could have been a great episode of the Twilight Zone. Yes. It's very evocative of the Twilight Zone. And in it, the Enterprise uh, finds a colony that's been destroyed, and there are only two survivors, uh, one played by John Anderson, a veteran of the Twilight Zone, and his wife, who are living in a small house, nice house, good tea, um, in, uh, uh, and are the only survivors. And they start to believe that perhaps these two are collaborators with the enemy, the, the unfortunately named Hustock. Um, yes. But it is a sensational episode. It doesn't get a lot of love in fan that's circles. True. Uh, it should. It's it's it, it really well written. Um, it, it's a great science fiction plot. Uh, it is Star Trek, you know, again, at its very best, which is perhaps why it's on this list. Right. Um, and I can't say enough good things about it. Wouldn't you agree, Rob Burnett? I would agree. I think that the one of the you know, I, I just watched this episode recently because I was I was showing it to uh, my girlfriend, Elizabeth, and I told her about John Anderson. Uh, who, all the way back to the Twilight Zone episode, The Odyssey of Flight 33, one of the great episodes of that show, John Anderson is such a tremendous actor, and he plays uh, uh, a Dowd, a character who's revealed to be a Dowd. Right. 
and and his performance he'd worked with Jonathan Frakes before on North and South and uh, it's just his performance is one of the great turns of a guest star in all of Next his Generation. His confession, I didn't kill one Husnack or yeah, a thousand Husnack. or ten thousand. I killed all Husnack all of them. everywhere. It, it, and, if and this was just my personal list, it would be higher on the list. Yes, 100%. yeah, I, I, me too. And uh, the, the moment where he reveals that, and it cuts to Patrick Stewart, and he's trying to fathom that this character has committed genocide because his wife was killed in this attack, and and Patrick Stewart's like, we with I, his we, mind, we can't even judge, judge your crime. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's a great, great, yeah, great amazing. episode, great science fiction concept. It's one of the lost gems of Star Trek. Oh, so good. Number twenty nine. Two hundred years ago, he was a prince with power over millions. And now he's in Space Seed. Machiavelli? Uh, yes, no. Kanunin uh, Singh, played by the wonderful Ricardo Montalban. Um, he is um, amazing. I'm choked up about him. I hear you. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the Enterprise encounters, about this, Fantasy Island. encounters this ancient uh, spaceship with uh, a bunch of people frozen in stasis. And uh, we find out that they are the result of the eugenics wars of the 1990s. You remember those. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I was sleeping that day. Yes. And Khan Noonien Singh was their leader. The, he was the best of the tyrants, as Kirk says. Uh, and um, he is so dynamic and compelling, you almost want to join him because uh, he, is, uh, he is magnetic. And who can forget his scene with Chekhov? <laughs> Well, he certainly didn't. <laughs> he memorized the crew roster. We just hadn't met Chekhov yet. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's you know obviously it was the uh, it was the inspiration for Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Uh, but it's such a glorious episode. It has everything you want to see in Star Trek. It has uh, interpersonal uh, conflict. Great, great lines. Great script. Um, great characters. It's just great. It also so, has a, a moment uh, where I, I've always loved this. Here is this most macho of men, uh, a, a lady killer par excellence, and a woman has fallen in love with him, and there's a moment where he actually has a woman on the ground as he's squeezing her wrist, and you think it could be really rapey. But what does he say? He says, go or stay, but do it because it is what you wish to do. Right. And as a kid, that always made an impression on me. I was like, wow, you know... That's the way you got to be. Okay. <laughs> That's the lesson you took from Spacey? You know, it's funny because my lesson as a kid was I actually went and read Milton. Right. Uh, I, wow. I, I, was, I loved the, uh, that quote, it's yeah. better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. And um, I was fascinated by that. It's a great ending. It had the bell. You know, and uh, uh, it's just, you know, it's funny. I, I, I don't love Spacey, but I do love the Botany Bay and I love obviously Ricardo's performance and the, the sleeper chambers. There, there's a lot to like in this episode. And of course, I think the estimation of Space Seed has gone up in, 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 after Star Trek II. Like I remember like in those Best of Trek collections before Star Trek II came out, nobody talked about Space Seed. It was no. only after Star Trek II that everyone fell in love with Space Seed. Interesting. It's, it's true. It's a great episode, though. Yeah, absolutely. So, 28. Well, that brings us to... Imagine turning the Starship Voyager... Target the first city. Panther. ...into the Warship Voyager. When diplomacy fails, there's only one alternative. Violence. Now, the imagining is over. The crew will turn into cold-blooded killers. Resistance is futile. And history will turn into anarchy. No 
This is impossible. On the next Star Trek Voyager. This is a phenomenal episode, again, totally off-concept of Voyager. It's set 700 years in the future, where we see a, a the warship Voyager. The episode opens as we are watching the warship Voyager and altered versions of our cast, very different than we've seen them before. And we find out that it's actually a an alien museum that is showing their version of the Voyager. Uh, based on events from 700 years previously. It's kind of like the Creation Museum in the Midwest. Um, and and the, you find out that uh, the uh, an extra holographic doctor emitter was stolen by these people, and it's actually in this museum, and it accidentally gets activated. And the holographic doctor shows up 700 years in the, this future, and, and he has to explain that their version of history is completely skewed and wrong. And 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 to tell It's like Sleeper. It's it's just yes. And it is a it's a wonderful episode and uh not only do we get to see it, it's kind of like it's like the mirror universe but not the mirror universe. And we get to see the actors just tearing up the scenery uh in the beginning. Everybody looks different than they normally look. Other characters are different. But then when the doctor shows up and you you realize it has a really interesting point to make about how the the fog of history can somehow uh, uh, change things, and 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 our belief in what happened is not always, in fact, true. And it's just a wonderful episode. Great, Ashley, you want to take us through twenty-seven, episode twenty-seven, uh, another wonderful episode of Deep Space Nine, a two-hander, a money saver, a bottle show. They say he butchered thousands. He commanded a forced labor camp. Now millions cry for justice. Let me know when you hang the Cardassian. But only one will stand against him. Look at the hate in her eyes. The war is over. How many Cardassians did you kill? We had no choice. But Kira's battle has just begun. He was there. He did it. On the next episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, that I believe was the penultimate episode of yes, season was, one was, of the show. Was. And it was, as much as I, I really enjoyed the show up to that point, there were episodes that I loved, this was the episode that made me go, oh, holy shit. Uh, it, uh, it is Major Kira, and they have a Cardassian prisoner. Um, and I believe it's Paul Dooley. Paul isn't Dooley, it? yes. Paul it Dooley. Is. Plays... No, isn't it Harris Ulan? Oh, it's Harris Ulan. Oh, Harris Ulan, right. Who's okay. on Ozark, who was on Ozark. Yes. Yeah, spoiler, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Uh, and he is playing someone that they believe to be the commandant of a Cardassian uh, concentration camp for Bajorans. And Kira is absolutely convinced that this is the guy. They're going to put him to death. They're going to have their revenge. And what you find out at the end of this episode, spoiler alert, and it's, again, it's it's very much like The Survivors, except it's kind of the, the, the flip of that, where you find out, like, um, this thing about this character that, that totally changes your idea of what you've just seen. And he tells us that, and we actually, he doesn't really tell us. He eventually admits it. Kira finds it out and has to confront her own prejudices and her own rush to judgment um, that Harris Yulin was never the commandant, that he was, he was the janitor, that he was no one. But the guilt of what the Cardassians did to the Bajorans so crushes his soul that he is willing to play this part, to play this role, to give this feral performance as this awful, you know, evil person that you 100% believe is who Kira believes that he is. And that he did it because he, he didn't know how else 
um, to make what the Cardassians had done right. And it just, it kills you. Well, before Robert Shaw was Quint in Jaws and Red Grant in uh, From Russia Love, he wrote a play called The Man in the Glass Booth, which is basically is. But th- that doesn't matter because this is a freaking great episode. And much like the drumhead, it was at a time where they had run out of money. They spent a crazy amount of money that season. They had no money left. This is why it sort of peters out at the end in terms of money, but not in terms of drama. Duet and In the Hands of the Prophets are, are two of uh, the, the best episodes of, of Deep Space Nine. But Duet is a bottle show, uh, but it is... Um, it is an epic in terms of its concepts, its ideas, its allegory, and it's just a great episode. So let's uh, go to 26. It's in 1966. Gene Roddenberry went to uh, Leonard Nimoy and said, how would you like a beautiful love story? And Nimoy said, I think that's a bad idea. But Dorothy Fontana came up with the script for This Side of Paradise. And uh, it's one of my favorites. It's uh, uh, Spock uh, goes down. To, we, they all go down to the planet of uh, Omicron Sadie 3, and they meet this uh, outpost of people who shouldn't be alive because of the Berthold rays that are constantly bombarding the planet. Are they farming and fucking? They are. <laughs> That's a free enterprise <laughs> reference, Rob. <laughs> and... Uh, one Six by one. people just got that. <laughs> <laughs> and four of them are sitting here. here. <laughs> um, and uh, one by one, our, uh, our uh, crew gets infected by these spores, uh, which are uh, irradiated uh, plants on the surface that apparently give uh, immunity and perfect health to everyone who is in- infected by them. Uh, it also takes away their drive and their uh, and their individuality. So everyone wants to just laze around and do nothing and uh, have no accomplishments, no progress. Uh, and it's uh, it's really a wonderful story. And it infects Spock in such a way that it frees him from his hidden emotions and he lets him uh, fall in love. Well, even as a kid, I fell in love with Jill Ireland. Oh my God. Yeah. She is just so radiant in that episode. Much like Charlie Bronson, we all fell in love with Jill Ireland. But in a different way. There's a great Kirk (laughs) quote. Uh, You know. There's a great Kirk quote in this episode when when the idea of these these colonists were going to make this thriving uh, community that was going to to realize their dreams. And Kirk says, another dream that failed. There's nothing sadder. As a kid, I was always like, oh. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, has a great fight between Kirk and Spock, and so much comes out about Spock's yeah, character. Right next to the dog-faced dog-faced boy. boy. You're an elf with a hyperactive thyroid. Yeah. Does she know what she's getting, Spock? A carcass full of memory banks who should be squatting on a mushroom instead of passing himself off as a man. I love that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Darren. Well, now that goes to episode 25. Which means, which means... that we got to stop. Yeah. Because there's a whole other episode of this, bitch. My God, aren't you right? Yes. We're going to stop here. This is part one. Uh, you'll join us next week to find out the last whether 25. Picard survives. That's Mr. Right. Burnett, uh, fire. Cue <laughs> <laughs> the Ron Jones music. Well, I got I to gotta say, this, this, has been, this has been a nail biter. I can't wait to find out what the next 25 episodes I are. Who knows what's As next. we count down to number one and usher in the new year. Will it be something to celebrate, or will people at home be throwing their phones at the wall because will it they're be so a dream? Move or along, a nightmare. Home. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us today on uh, 
Oh, Whatever great. The hell this this is. I, I, got, I, I got I got the uh, the Disco Nights uh, outro. That doesn't do me any good. Um, <laughs> thanks for joining us today on Disco Nights. Wait, I'll cross that. Thanks for joining us on Inglorious Trexperts. And Nights. please join us for the disco party. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> please join us for uh, the Inglorious Trexperts party it when our ball every drops. Sunday. Nope, every not Thursday, Sunday for an all new episode as we explore the world of Star Trek Discovery. Not on this show, Mister. <laughs> um, if you liked what not you heard, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. In addition, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at. Inglorious Trek, uh, and and um, no. by the Inglorious way, listen Trek. to our sister show, Disco Nights, and uh, also and please share and your also four thirty movie at four thirty movie dot com. Right, the mothership, and this is one thing we can all agree on. A very special thanks to Bill Ritter, and mm-hmm. who makes us sound so very good. And, uh, and Ali Mascali, who our, our our associate producer, and everyone Thank here you. at the Electric Search Studios for making the show possible. So until next week, this is Chase Masterson. <laughs> <laughs> I, until next week, this is Robert Meyer Burnett, Darren Dockerman, Ashley Miller, myself, Mark A. Altman saying. <laughs> what are we saying? What are we saying? Oh. I have no idea. We'll see you for the con- exciting conclusion. Commander Taggart, Uranus, it's on fire. Wait, how, how does the menagerie end? To be with, continued with the bell, right? <laughs> with the bell, did, did, we we're, we're, we're concluded, but you know they they stop because Captain Pike is tired, right? Captain right. Pike is tired, you but we'll be back is. next week to conclude <laughs> the tribunal. Don't, don't, don't let, let him, him stop, stop me. me. <sighs> Commodore Mendez was never here. We'll see you next week on Inglorious Trexperts. Shh. Engage. <laughs>